Hi, this is your host Helen, and welcome to today's episode of Asian Bitches Down Under. It is my pleasure today speaking with Amy Ip. Amy is a somatic life transformation and fi-、uh, mental fitness coach, keynote speaker, and self-confidence trainer, which I'll probably need a lot.、Um, she works with women of color leaders to strengthen their mental fitness, heal intergenerational wounds, find their voices, and courage to speak up. And have the agency to let go of all the shoots, so that they can be the authors of their own life stories. Amy is also the author of Unfinished Business: Breaking Down the Great Wall Between Adult, Child, and Immigrant Parents, which is coming very soon. Her mission is to empower AAPI women to be seen, to be here, and to fucking rock the boat. Um. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Amy here today. Yay! Thank you. Thank you. Joining me today,、um, can we start with you telling us about yourself, your background, family heritage, where you grew up, and what was your childhood like? Yeah.、Um, so I am the third daughter of Chinese immigrant parents, and my parents actually came to America. Left my sisters back in Hong Kong so that they could establish themselves in America.、Uh, my middle sister had a hole in her heart, and the doctors in Hong Kong were not as proficient. And so, a big motivation for my parents to come was to help my sister get medical care so that she could survive. So they came to America, a thousand seven hundred dollars U.S. dollars in their pockets to establish themselves in the U.S. And a year later, my mom's pregnant with me,、mm-hmm. and that, so I was an accident, you know, unexpected. And from what my parents tell me, my dad had said, "Two daughters, this one has to be the boy. It's got to be the boy, right?" And so he's like, "We've got to keep it. It'll be a boy." And then out I come, and they always joke that、um, my dad fainted when he saw that I was born because it's he's like, oh no, another daughter. <laughs> so growing up, I、uh, I had this sense of oh, I should have been a boy. I need to meet my dad's expectations. So there was a part of me that tried really hard throughout childhood to play sports, to be boyish. I didn't want to be a girly girl. When people called me a tomboy, I was proud of it. I was like, yeah, boy. And then there's this other side of me that was very, very confused because my parents wanted me to be a good Chinese girl, right? Staying quiet and listening to the rules and being nice. And I still remember when I was young, I wanted to do,、um, I wanted to take karate lessons, and they were like, "No, no, that's for boys. How about doing Chinese dance or,、oh. you know, or, or whatnot?" And and I was like, "Ah,、uh, okay." <laughs> you know, but but I thought you wanted a voice. I grew up with this confusion on,、mm. like, you know, am I supposed to be the boy that you always wanted, or am I supposed to be this good Chinese daughter that you want me to be? So that was one big element. And then there was just a lot of pressure to succeed, be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. You know, like we made sacrifices, so you need to be able to be successful and make money.、Um, there was just a lot of pressure. But I tried really, really hard to retaliate.、Mm-hmm. You know, so when they said you need to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, I was like, no. I want to be an artist. But obviously, my parents were like, we will disown you if you, <laughs> if you go and study art. So I was like, okay, fine. You know,、um, 
but I, I tried to rebel throughout all of it. I ended up going to school and studying both computer science and public relations because I, I love the analytical, but I also love the creative work and I didn't want to give up the creative side. So I studied both. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I ended up, it was funny because I started my career in consulting mm-hmm. and then I ended up later at Google. Mm-hmm. And when I was at Google, you know, it was, it's like the Harvard of all yes. companies. So my dad would go around bragging about it. He would hand my business card oh. out the places and be like this is where my daughter works and well one time I even got an email from Bank of America and it said you know to Mr. Yip and I was like wait did you give my emails he's like oh they they said they needed an email so I gave them your business card I'm like okay you can't do that so yeah that was that was a lot of my childhood was very traditional Chinese parents having high expectations for success for achievement a lot of pressure um and they wanted me to marry a good Chinese boy and I ended up marrying a white guy. Uh, and so even the day before my wedding, I broke down in tears thinking I had disappointed them. Oh my God, I feel so much resonated with you. So much, I gotta cry. Um, similar to your birth story, I, I, don't, I haven't shared uh, this on my podcast before. Uh, between my parents, my mom fainted when I was born that she realized um, I wasn't a son. And this is very similar to a story to when you're married to a white guy as well. My mom um, ferociously opposed uh, me getting married to a white guy and then she didn't want to be in contact with me for a very long time and to, you know, a week before my wedding that she finally came around with it and then we worked out everything. Um, yeah, I feel like we have a lot of common things <laughs> in our life that we can go through. Um, but I want to start with, can you just tell us about your job being a somatic life transformation and mental fitness coach? What uh, What is it involved and how does it differ to say like counselors and therapists? Yeah, um, so that's a great question. I'll start with the first part, which is the difference between a therapist or counselor versus a coach. Typically, uh, a counselor or therapist works on the past and helping to heal the past, whereas a coach is very much forward looking and where is it you're trying to go? And I always use the analogy of a bike. So a therapist might sit with you in a room, talk to you about a bike until you're comfortable talking about it. They might show you a photo until you're comfortable looking at it, maybe bring a bike in one day, have you touch it and then maybe sit on the bike. Versus a coach, we would put you on the bike, look at where you're trying to go, have you go toward, start riding in that direction. I might take photos, I might take videos, you come back, I show you what I notice, you know, and, and really guide you to getting to that point. And, and part of it is maybe what we'll see is you're carrying a backpack full of shit that is not helping you to get to your goal, in which case we might need to open the backpack and drop off some of whatever is not helping you to get to where you need to go. Um, and that's where there's might be a little overlap with therapy. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, yeah, yeah, please continue. <laughs> I realize I, the, the other piece is, you know, I do a lot of coaching around um, both mental fitness and somatic work. And so somatics is really around the body. And, and it is around, you know, like our, 
Our tissues have intelligence, our muscles have memory, right? It's kind of like when you're riding a bike or driving a car, the first time you're doing it, it's gonna feel clumsy. By the 10th, 100th time, your body just remembers. And our body, the same way when it comes to trauma, when it comes to a fight, flight, freeze response, our body learns from a very young age what is safe, what is not, how do I need to respond, right? So for example, when I was a kid, I got beat a lot. And so I knew when to keep my mouth shut and bite my tongue. And that's my my response to certain situations is I shut down and I close off and I don't say anything because that would result in me getting hit, right? And so it's these things that your body just remembers. And so within like the Asian community, a lot of us struggle to say no, a lot of us struggle to ask for what we want. And it's, it's interesting when I start working with people, we start noticing what is happening in the body as they're even thinking about saying no. And oftentimes it's a fight, flight, freeze response. They're like clenching up. And so it's around teaching the body a different way so that when you're about to say no, you can do it without going into that fight, flight, freeze. Mm, I see. Can you tell us about your experience of volunteering in Ghana? Is that the time that you thought about moving your careers towards coaching? Yeah, so um, I actually, for the longest time, had a dream to go travel the world. I wanted to go volunteer. I wanted to travel the world. It actually started when I was a brand manager at Clorox, which is in the US. It's a consumer packaged goods industry um, company. And I was on a brand called Hidden Valley Ranch Dressing. and. I had to sit in a room with my legal team asking what's the minimum amount of Greek yogurt we had to put into the Greek yogurt dressing to call it Greek yogurt, right? It was, we were doing a new launch and I was like, wait, is this really what my life has come to? I'm lying to the consumer. Like it just feels so wrong, goes against my values. So I decided I want to, I'm going to quit my job because I'm not happy, but I don't know what I want to do. So I was going to go do this eat, pray, love type of thing and figure out life. Um, and serendipitously, a recruiter from Google contacted me the day I was about to buy my flight. Mm -hmm. And the recruiter it contacted me on LinkedIn and said, this is a role, it's a global role, so you get to travel, you get to lead a global team, and it's a marketing role using food to help people live happier, healthier lives. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wait, what? You do good for people with marketing? <laughs> and so, Two weeks, 16 days later, from the day he contacted me, I got the offer. Wow. And so when I started, I had said, well, there's still something in me that really wants to go travel the world, that still wants to go volunteer and give back to the world. Mm -hmm. And so I had committed myself five years is the maximum amount of time I'll stay at Google. Mm -hmm. And then I want to go travel the world and go live my dream. But I just didn't realize that as a woman, in your mid thirties, there's a lot of big decisions to make. Mm -hmm. And so I was in at, at Google in my mid thirties, you know, for one, my career was going well and everyone's like, why would you leave Google? Are you like crazy? What's wrong with you? Um, my dad, of course, was very upset because he's handing out my business cards and he's like, what am I gonna tell people? And, um, you know, during that time I found a husband and husbands change plans. And then I think the biggest should of all during that time was everyone saying, Amy, you should just have babies. You're getting old, your eggs are rotting. If you don't have kids now, you know, you'll never be able to have kids. 
and um, my husband and I, we had our, we, we decided we do want kids, but we still want to go travel and pursue our dreams. So we had our embryos frozen. Mm-hmm. And that, that we thought that was a good backup plan, except a year later, we found out that the tank lost temperature control. Mm-hmm. So basically they, they told us your embryos, we don't know if it's viable anymore until you plan to use it. And I was like, but I wasn't planning on using it yet, right? Like that's why I froze them. Um, and that's kind of when I hit rock bottom and that was when I started soul searching. And, and you know, I, I, I really considered maybe I should stay, maybe I should do the normal thing, follow the path, you know, listen to all what everybody else is telling me to do, just live a normal life. But then there's a part of me that really felt like I wanted something different, mm-hmm. but I couldn't figure out what to do, like what was the right answer. So I started on my journey and I started reading books because as a good Chinese girl, I don't air my laundry. I don't tell people that I'm actually unhappy. So on the outside, I was just always smiling, but on the inside, you know, I wasn't. So I read books for eight months didn't get the answer. Do I go travel? Do I go have babies? Um, and then have you ever heard of ayahuasca? Uh, yes, I have. And it's sort of the ritual that where you consume something and some people I heard both negative and positive feedback. So I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Do share your story, please. So, so, uh, ayahuasca is a medicinal plant. It's a psychedelic and in Peru, they use it to cleanse, cleanse yourself. Mm-hmm. Right, cleanse your soul. Mother Ayahuasca gives you what you need, and you get clarity. And and a friend of mine basically had told me about ayahuasca. She's like, Amy, you know, there's this thing called ayahuasca. It gives you clarity. And I was like, oh, that's what I need. I need clarity. So I flew down to Peru for a five day ayahuasca ceremony, and I was like, you know, I'm ready for clarity. And I was super excited. I left with a lot of clarity on a lot of things about life, like, you know, the the value of being able to ask for help and how it takes more courage to do that than to not, or how heavy the armor that I had been wearing was. You know, I was like multiple, wearing different masks in different situations and it was just so heavy, right? And so I learned a lot of things like that, but I still just, I came home without the answer of, do I have babies? Do I stay here or do I go live my dream? And it wasn't until a coworker told me about coaching. I had no idea what coaching was before. And my coworker told me about coaching. I was honestly very skeptical because I thought, how could somebody who does not know me help me find my answer? That just sounds sketchy, right? And I'm smart enough to figure it out on my own. So, you know, why would I need somebody else's help? but I was pretty desperate. So I hired a coach and it was the best decision I made because she helped me to peel back the layers and figure out what really matters to me. And I I realized two things. One is I will regret it for the rest of my life if I don't go pursue my dreams, if I don't go volunteer and travel and do all this stuff while I still can. And so that's when I made my decision that I'm gonna quit my job at Google and I want to go travel and volunteer. And that's that's how uh, I found a nonprofit in Ghana to go volunteer with. And then the second decision that I made was 
I hated being stuck. And so I made the decision that I want to do what my coach did for me, which is become a coach and help other people get unstuck and not live a life based on what other people say you should do. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's such an amazing journey that you come through. Um, I actually would like to talk to you about motherhood a little bit later, but first I want to um, uh, uh, talk to you about the specific topics that you do um, throughout your coaching, specific on the intergenerational trauma and the relationship of the children and specifically the adult children and the immigrant parents. Um, what sort of issues that do we often see between adult children and their immigrant parents? I've seen a lot of, I'll, I'll, I'll actually, to frame this, I'll share a story about mm-hmm. one of my parents. She was a 55-year-old senior vice president at one of the largest banks in America. Very, very successful. But she was not happy in her career. And so she came to me for coaching on what should I do next? You know, what will make me happy? What will give me purpose? And so as we were exploring, she realized that she loves creative work. And so she really wanted to start an entrepreneurial business, start her own business around this creative juice that she has. Mm -hmm. And then in one of the sessions, she said to me, but Amy, I can't do this until after my dad passes away. And I said, what makes you believe that? And she said, well, my dad has always, since I was young, had high expectations for me. And when I became vice president, he said, I need to become president. And if I tell him that I'm gonna go do something creative and quit this prestigious job and have not no security at all, he's gonna be disappointed, he's gonna criticize, he's not gonna understand. And as we started exploring more, what came forth was she called it little girl mode. So she would go into a little girl mode when she thought about doing something that would disappoint him. Mm-hmm. And so I started seeing this pattern among a lot of my clients where they're afraid of disappointing their parents or they're afraid of what their parents would say or think or act. And so they either go and do it, but lie to their parents or don't tell their parents, or they just say, you know, I'm not going to do it. Mm -hmm. And yet none of them were willing to have conversations with their parents. None. Everyone said, you know, like my, my parent, my dad will mansplain me or they won't understand or, and so there's always this, um, this, like this unsaid pressure on them. There's this pressure, and yet there's also this longing for love and acceptance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so hard. I think um, having communicate. I, I get. I guess with immigrant parents that we have an extra layers of uncertainty, and also sometimes um, because as children of immigrants that we grew up in the Western society, the things that we perceive is much different to what our parents perceive back home back there you know home country and it's just the certain expectations and there's so much i think the word expectation really magnifies in immigrant uh, family is because you don't want to disappoint your fa- uh, family back at you know home country and also you want to stand up for yourself in a country that is predominantly white and it's so much pressure around them as well isn't it 
Oh yeah, there's there's so much pressure uh, with that. There's also for a lot of families, it's our parents gave up so much mm -hmm. to give us what we have, and so there's a lot of guilt of I need to pay my parents back. I need to repay them for their sacrifices, which means I need to do X Y Z, right? I can't I can't be happy. I can't take a break. I can't do all these things because then I'm not going to be able to repay them. Or there's also the the trying to straddle two different cultures. Mm -hmm. It's what our parents taught us of things like don't speak up, just work hard, it'll be noticed, you'll get promoted. And then I go to a company like Google and my boss keeps telling me, you need to lead from the front. Mm -hmm. And at Google, you need to actually nominate yourself for promotion, which is totally against everything that we grew up with, you know, everything my parents taught me. It was like, you don't pr nominate yourself for promotion, you just be quiet and work hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so true. It's just the like you mentioned earlier, you know, the confusion of got caught in between two cultures and the two expectations for you and you don't know which one is the best for you and it's just the way that navigates through that is not easy <laughs> yeah yeah um so it is the reason that lead you down the path of writing the book about your experience um what do you wish to see from publishing this book uh, so it was actually that client that I mentioned, the 55 year old senior vice president that started getting me to think, what stories do I have about my own parents? What do I hide from them? You know, like, and, and at this point I've I had done so much self-work and I thought I had healed, you know, I was like, oh, I, I'm good. I'm and then when I sat down, I was like, oh shit, I still have a lot of stories, a lot of baggage, a lot of things that I don't tell them. And so I started sitting down and I called them myths, you know, stories that I had in my head about who my parents were or what they believed about me. Everything from, you know, it's better to be a boy than a girl or um, I have to be mentally tough and I never ask for help or, you know, my parents are disappointed I married a white guy instead of a good Chinese boys. So just all these stories that I had in my head, but that I never had the courage to talk to my parents. And, and then I approached my, my parents and I said, would you be willing to have conversations with me around just your life and your experiences and, and questions that I have? And at first my dad said, you should talk to your uncle. He's a lawyer. He probably has more interesting stories than we do. We're just, we're just restaurant workers, you know? And so that kind of gives you a sense of how my parents think about prestige and, and all that, right? And so I was like, no, I don't want uncle stories. I want your life stories. And they're like, okay, if he thinks it's, you know, interesting, we'll share. And so I started on that journey and I spent over the last three years, probably 40 plus hours in conversations with my parents. And now, and those conversations were really, really hard. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't want people to think that they were easy, right? Like the first 20, 25 hours were so many tears, resentment, anger, frustrations. And now on the other side of it, it's our relationship is so different. And, you know, one of my stories that I'll share is uh, I'm, I'm going through fertility treatments. I'm, I'm actually using those embryos that were frozen, you know, to see if they're, they're good or not. And in May, we tried an embryo transfer and it failed. And I was really, really afraid to tell my parents because 
my parents tend to criticize or tell you it's your fault. So it's a lot of blame, right? When my sister had miscarriages five or six years ago, they blamed her. They're like, oh, you must have done too much Kung Fu or you must have done this, you know? And, and so I was so afraid to tell my parents, but my dad called and I was like, okay, I'm gonna have the courage. I'm just gonna be honest, I don't wanna lie. So I told him and I was just bracing myself. Like I went into fear mode and my whole body tightened and I was ready for whatever they were gonna say. And then my dad said, you know, Amy, when it comes to fate, some things just work out, some things don't, and it'll be okay. Mm. And my jaw dropped. I was like, wait, who are you? Are you my dad? <laughs> You're supposed to say something mean. Like, and then my mom got on the phone. So then I was like, oh, she's gonna say something, you know, and I was bracing myself. And she goes, Amy, are you crying? It's okay, don't cry, don't be sad. Everything will be okay. Do you need me to come over? And I was like, who are you, right? Like, you know, and, and, and that's the thing is, if it weren't for those conversations over three years, my persistence, I don't think our relationship would be in this place where they are so supportive and not blaming and they understand my pain, you know, and, the, and what I'm going through and they can actually be there for me instead of, what would have been, you know, before those conversations, which is a lot of criticism and blame. And so that's why I wrote the book. In the book, I share my own stories, I share my parents' stories, and then I have worksheets. So there's, I call it a date with your parents, mm -hmm. and you, you go on a date with your parents, and there's self-reflective prompts, there are questions to ask your own parents, and then there are uh, post-conversation reflection questions. So my hope is really that people can start healing and transforming their own relationship with their parents, because I know what's possible. I know it's not easy, and I know what's possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the goal of um, having books like this, or what you've written, is trying not to having a conversation with someone who you already you know is so intimate and also have such a conflict with it's not easy and at the end of the day i feel like we just need to change our own mentality to accept one another isn't it mm -hmm. yeah um i've had the privilege of reading part of your book and you spoke about um the language of love um, I, I feel like with the parents, our own parents, um, their love, their method of love is more of a survival. Whereas when we grow up in the Western country, we uh, usually think that is love is anything that you can express you through words, through intimacies or physical touches. But how do we? It's it's just so hard to connect our parents to onto the same level. Uh, to express the same, you know, ideal uh, expression of love. What do you think, how can we uh, maybe guide ourselves or guide our parents through that kind of journey of meeting them, you know, at the same point? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question because I went on this huge journey on my own because I wanted my parents to be more affectionate. I wanted my parents to say, I love you. And I'll, I'll tell you, there is no human being on the planet that does not like physical touch, that does not like hearing the words, I love you, does not like any signs of love, right? When we were babies, we were born needing physical touch. 
And there, there have been studies that have even shown during COVID when we are not in physical connection with other human beings, that has an impact on our well-being, right? So we all actually, as human beings, need physical touch. We need those words. We need connections with other human beings. In terms of our parents, because to your point, a lot of them have experienced trauma. A lot of them have been through wars, famine, all of those things for them their life is one of survival, of trauma, of, of scarcity. And so for them, how they show love tends to be through food because back then you don't have food. So for them, it's like, okay, if I'm sacrificing food and not eating it myself to give to you, that's a sign of me showing you love, right? And and if you've ever taken the, the test, the five love languages, that is actually one of the love languages. It's acts of service, mm -hmm. doing something for someone else. When it comes to words and physical touch, in all honesty, it's just exposing our parents to it again. Mm. So when I was young, I really wanted to hear my parents say, I love you. And one of the things I did, I, I would just keep saying, I love you. And so I would say to my mom, I love you. And she's like, love me, I love. I don't love you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so we're Cantonese, so I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> but then, um, one time right before I had to go to school, I kept saying, I love you, I love you. And she's like, she's like you're, you're gonna be late for school. You gotta go. And I'm like, well, whose fault is that? Say, I love you. And then I will go to school. And she's like, okay, okay, okay. Love you, love, 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 love. Dala, dala, dala. Like, you know? <laughs> so you kind of emotionally blackmailed her. <laughs> yes. And, and the thing is, I did that so much, right? And it was a lot of persistence because I got a lot of, I don't love you or like, love me, I love and all this, like most people would have given up, but I was like, no, I'm not. And I kept going, I kept going and I kept going. And now my parents actually say, I love you to me, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but it took a lot of time. And it's the same thing with affection. I would run to my parents and give them hugs and kisses. And at first, like my dad's like, you know, pushing me away. And now he actually loves it. Yeah. That's and, and, and the funny, the funny thing is they're not going to admit it because I, I, I asked my dad that question um, when, when we were having conversations about love for my book. And, and I said, so do you like hugs and kisses from your daughters? And my mom jumped in and she said, of course he does. And I was like, okay, no, I want, I want to hear daddy okay. say it. Okay. And he's like, well, you heard my mom, you heard your mommy. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, but I want you to say it. And he's like, yeah, what she said. So it's, it's he still can't admit it, but he kind of admitted it, you know, by saying, yeah, what she said. So like, they love it. They just can't admit it. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's certain pride within Asian males that is hard for them to express affection through words. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually so cute, yeah. <laughs> um, I want to move on uh, talking about boundaries and speaking up for your own needs. Um, what do you think that some people, specifically Asian females, well, females in general, but I think specifically Asian females, fall into like a toxic cycle, assuming that you've experienced a hardship uh, and therefore that their children need to do the same as well. I've seen a lot of women um in our own generations that they're saying that oh how come our mom have experienced hardship and now they couldn't understand what we're going through and assuming that we're doing much better that's why they're putting pressures more on us what do you think um how do you think that we can create a boundaries for that around towards our 
mothers or towards yeah, to our, our mothers or I've seen uh, around like workplace as well sometimes that if you have a female boss um, it's hard to say no because they will use the rhetoric around you know feminism saying that all oh, female need to support female but sometimes it could become right. like a intentional bully but you can't really you know figure out what is going on yeah I, I think so at my belief is that for many of us, we've been raised to be pleasers. Mm, okay. That's what makes speaking up for your needs and setting boundaries so hard, mm -hmm. right? They, they act, and, and this isn't just Asian women. Asian For Asian women, I think it's even worse because of, of our culture and what we're taught. But there, there have been studies, like there was a study um, where the researchers gave little boys and little girls lemonade, except instead of putting sugar in it, they put salt. Mm -hmm. The little boys, when they were given it they and asked, how is it? They would just drink it and they would spit it out. They'd say, oh, that's disgusting. This is no good. The little girls would drink it. And you could even see their faces where they kind of wince because it's so disgusting, but they'll chug the whole thing. They'll drink it all. And the researchers would ask them, oh, how was it? And they'd be like, oh, it was okay, you know, or oh, it was good. And it wasn't until a lot of pushing that the girls would finally say, oh yeah, it wasn't that great but I didn't want to tell you because I didn't want to hurt your feelings. And so it's this thing where, you know, as, as girls growing up, we're taught, you have to be nice, don't hurt people's feelings, be a good girl, be a nice girl, right? And in, in the Asian culture, I think it's even, even more so because women are seen as less than, our job is to please the man. It's to serve the man, to serve the house, to serve the children, all, all of that. And so we, there, there is no boundary because our job is to serve, you know, like our needs don't matter. And so if we're raised with that, then it's hard to speak up for your needs. It's hard to set your boundaries. And so one of the things that I, I do with a lot of my clients, the first exercise is what are your boundaries? Because it's hard to instill your boundaries if you don't even know where that do not enter sign is. Mm -hmm. And so I have people write down like what is in my boundaries, what is outside of my boundaries, and then what is stuff that I will deal, I'll be okay with, but I won't like. And, and being very clear, how often am I going to be okay with that? And so if it's in a work and work situation, for example, it could be my boundary, what's what I'm okay with. I'm okay with meetings between nine to five. What is out of my boundaries, I will not take any calls after 7 p.m. and nothing before, you know, I don't know, 8 a.m. And what's, you know, in the gray area? Well, between eight and nine in the morning, once in a while, if it's a global meeting, maybe max of once a week, I'll, I'll say yes to it. But otherwise it's no, right? And so being very, very clear with what is in and what is out. So for example, when I was at Google, one of the things that I told my bosses from the very beginning, I have to work out every day. It's what keeps me sane. I have to move. And so I am happy doing it first thing in the morning. I'm happy doing it during my lunch hour, but I will not not do it. So I'm gonna be gone at, for an hour at some point in during the day, you know, but I will work extra either before or after the day, you know, like, so that was my boundary of like, I've got to do that. Hmm. How do you handle like a situation where someone crosses your boundaries? Um, like, how do you tell yourself that, yeah, just go for it and say no? I feel like 
when saying no, <clears throat> when saying no is one thing, okay, but have have the courage to say no is another thing. Yeah, it is practicing, mm. and that's something I tell a lot of people. And that's where the whole somatic coaching work comes in. It is all about a practice. My my teacher from uh, Strozzi Institute, he used to always say, it takes three hundred times of intentional practice to build muscle memory. 3,000 times to turn it into an embodiment, mm-hmm. right? Where it's just an embodied action, where it's just natural. And so it's around how do I practice the no? And it might be starting with very easy things, right? What are really easy things that you could practice saying no to? Because I'm sure if you start looking at are there certain people? or situations and circumstances where it's harder to say no, you'll probably be able to find like, okay, these are these ones are really hard. These ones are not as hard. And so it's like, how do you start practicing with the easy ones? And I actually put people on a no diet where, <laughs> I, you know, if you, you, you put yourself on a no diet and you're on this no diet for like a week or two, you tell all your closest friends and family, maybe some of your coworkers, I'm going on a no diet, which means over the next few weeks, Every time you ask me for something, I'm gonna automatically start with a no. If I change my mind, I can come back to you later and say, actually, it's a yes, mm-hmm. right? And if you catch me saying yes to you right away, call me on it. Mm-hmm. And friends and family love to call you on things, so they'll love to participate in this. They'll be like, ah, you said yes, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it is all about practicing and getting in touch with the the body, the soma, like what is it doing? And, and also part of it is recognizing like, what does my body do when I'm about to say no? And then how do I get back to center before I respond? Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Um, You briefly mentioned about your journey of freezing your embryo and uh, just before. Um, Maybe you could share with your uh, what's happening right now uh, and also how did that decision came about? I guess, you know, I I know a couple of my friends that they're in their mid-30s or they're actually early 30s and they had this urge of having babies but also they haven't met the right person they're in a dilemma and could maybe you can share your experience or how you came about you freezing your embryo yeah so i it was it was funny because i was having a meal with a friend and she started telling me about the fact that she was going to start freezing her eggs because she hadn't found the right guy yet and we're in our mid-30s and i was like wait i never thought about that right and i'm like oh I guess I'm kind of getting old. I should look into that. And so I started looking into it. And interestingly enough, my husband came along in the midst of that. And um, and we started dating and he's like, well, why don't, you know, why don't we just make embryos? And so I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, like, why not? Because the doctor had even said the, the likelihood of like, if you turn the egg into an embryo and it lasts, you're gonna have much higher chance of having a baby from that than just an egg itself, right? So I was like, okay, that makes sense. So we we decided to freeze our embryos. Part of it was because we were both in our mid thirties. I think I was 36 at the time when I did it, which is already like, they say the tipping point is 35 and then your, your egg quality and all that goes down. So I thought, why not? Like it's a good backup plan. Um, 
And then the other reason was because we wanted to go travel. We wanted to to go volunteer. We didn't know when we would be feel ready enough to start a family. Like we knew we wanted one. We just didn't know when we would feel ready. And so who knows, like, you know, we were like, oh, maybe by the time we're 40 and then 40, you're really, really old. So let's do this. And so we start, we, we did that. And the odd thing, odd thing, the serendipitous thing is that while we were overseas, so I said in January of 2020, quit our jobs, went to Ghana to volunteer at a breast cancer nonprofit. Um, and then we were supposed to travel the world. Mm-hmm. But then, as you probably know, there was that thing in in 2020 <laughs> called COVID that came along and completely shifted the world. So we ended up stuck in Ghana for seven months. Borders closed, we couldn't get out. And then when borders reopened, we started living and working nomadically. Mm-hmm. And during that time, we were turning 40 while we were overseas and we're like, you know what? We should probably start trying. Mm-hmm. Two months later, I got pregnant naturally. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, I, I thought, oh, because everyone says when you're 40, it'll take you years, you know, long time. And so I was like, oh, well, it's going to take years. And then two months later, I'm like, uh, why am I throwing up all the time? <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I ended up pregnant. And so I feel like it was a funny little circle. The thing that held me back from pursuing my dream and, and wanting to go travel and volunteer was this fear of not being able to have a baby. And then the thing that brought me back was actually getting pregnant with my little guy. And so I returned back to the US two years ago. Mm-hmm. Wow. So what is motherhood like for you now? Has motherhood changed or impact your life plan? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so most of my life, I've been very career driven. Mm-hmm. I know what I want. I work hard for it. I, I go do the thing. And so, and I will also add that a lot of the clients I work with, they are mothers and they come to me and say, I had a kid, 10 years went by and I don't know what happened. I lost who I am, Mm -hmm. right? I lost my motivation. I lost my dreams and I don't even know who I am anymore. So I need help with that. And so when I got pregnant, I kept telling my husband, I will not be one of those women that loses a sense of who she is and what matters to her. So I am, when kiddo turns three months, we're gonna put baby into daycare and I'm going to mosey on back on my path towards the thing that I long for and I care about. Little did I know when Logan is his name, when Logan was born, I fell so in love with this little kid. I just, something shifted in me. And I was like, I can't put him in daycare. I don't want to put him in daycare, but there was still this turmoil in me, right? Because I was like, but I told myself that I would not be one of those women who lose themselves into motherhood. And so I I ended up working with a coach. And what came from that was, it is not giving myself up if it is a choice. Mm-hmm. And it is a choice that I'm going to make with intention, right? And so when he when he was first born, my husband and I talked about it. And after working with the coach, I decided I don't want to completely give up my career, but I'm going to also not want to give up motherhood. So I chose to go back part time. And and as as a an entrepreneur, I, I have that choice, you know, which I know I'm lucky 
to be able to do that. So I worked three days and then I got to hang out with my little kiddo the rest of the time. And he's been such a blessing. And then when he turned probably like 12 months, so when he was about one year, then um, I started full time again. Mm, yeah. Um, for women nowadays, that it is still a dilemma for many that they whether or not they think that they need to choose to move on events on their career or stay home and look after you know their kids fully. And I, I do think that hopefully I don't know what the American system social welfare it looks like, but it is progressing. I believe in Australia as well that I'm seeing a lot more、uh, mothers they have their choice. Of、uh, flexibility that they can be both, you know, they have the time to spend with their children, and also they have、um, their interest of pursuing anything that they want in a career, whether or not it's a hobby or,、um, you know, earning more income <laughs> for the household.、Um, so that was my final question, and it was so great speaking to you. Thank you for so much、uh, for speaking with me today and share your insights and your work.、Um, all the best. Of the launch for your book and the future endeavors, when and where could people be able to purchase your book? Yeah, so the book is coming out on September twenty eighth,、mm -hmm. and it is available on all major retailers, so Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Bookshop dot org, and Books a Million. Okay, fantastic! Thank you again so much. Thank you. It was great to talk. <laughs>